Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Protect Our Province COVID-19 Alberta on Tuesday, September 28, 2021, live streaming from the traditional and ancestral territory of many peoples. We are grateful to live and work in Alberta, a province on the traditional territory of First Nations and the unceded homeland of the Métis Nation. Today's conversation is Today's conversation is being shared in ASL. To ensure access to completely accurate information, closed captioning will be uploaded after the live stream is complete. This conversation for the public is being shared live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. We are hopeful that this will increase the accessibility of our briefings for all Albertans. The Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing is a regular panel of doctors and experts. We will endeavor to bring timely, accurate updates on the COVID-19 crisis in Alberta and take questions from the media. The views of our panelists are their own and do not represent any institutions they may be affiliated with. We have collectively gathered here as concerned Albertans attempting to ensure that everyone in the province has access to as much information concerning COVID-19 as possible. Today we are going to look at misinformation with a focus on vaccination. We are going to explore barriers and hesitation and common myths around the available COVID-19 vaccines. Thank you everyone for joining us again today. As always, we will begin with a brief update on the COVID-19 situation in Alberta. With us today is Dr. Vipond. Hey everybody, you can hear me all right, Michelle? Um, so I'm at work today, uh, I'm begged in AHS uh, or Alberta Health, but I just happened to be working there today as a contractor. Um, so uh, I haven't had time to do anything fancy with the numbers. Um, I could tell you a couple of things that I've just seen just looking through them. Our cases yesterday, 1,300, that's a, a moderate drop from last uh, week's 1,424. Um, and, uh, but uh, worrisome is that the, uh, the percent positivity continues to be edging a little bit higher. Flat t today or yesterday over last week at 11.46. Uh, last Monday, and again, 11.46 this Monday. Of note, with the percent positivity, we're at, um, uh, in the south zone, a new record for the pandemic at 27.11%, and we have never seen that before. The south has, to this point, been um, kind of avoiding the badness that we've seen um, around, um, around rural Alberta, uh, so maybe that's about to change. Um, hospitalizations. Uh, continue to climb about an increase of 20 each day for the last couple of days. As people have noted, uh, has seen me note before, there's always a lot of a revision with the, both the hospitalization with the hospitalizations with the inpatients. Um, and so keep an eye on that. Um, I'll be putting out the formal numbers uh, later today. So our inpatients now at 837 um, and ICU, uh, I, a slight drop of five to 263 uh, day over day. What's been interesting with the ICU numbers is um, up to this point, we have not seen a lot of revisions, but in the last week or so, I've seen a lot of revisions um, day over day. So keep an eye out on that. It's probably worse than um, an actual drop of five over the last uh, last 24 hours. I think, I think that'll be revised. So it's um, closer to neutral or even up. Um, deaths, uh, let me just quickly go to that. See, I'm running the numbers as we go. That's live action for you here. Um, uh, we've had uh, 18 new deaths and I did notice that one of the deaths was a female in her 30s um, in the uh, in the Edmonton area. So another death under under the age of 40, which always um, 
makes me contemplate how badly we're doing. And then, uh, as people probably have been seeing, I've been following the uh, the ages um, and uh, of the cases. And again, today we have just ongoing massive exponential growth in our five to eleven years. Um, that's not surprising. We know that kids, um, despite what uh, the chief medical officer of health says, we know that kids do spread it in schools. Uh, and uh, so, of course, those 5 to 11 being unvaccinated and being in that close contact space of a, of a classroom, um, no surprise that they're going up. And, you know, I have to point this out every single time. We do not have adequate mitigation measures for our kids. We still don't have a mask mandate for the K to three ages. We still don't have uh, AHS reporting cases to schools and we still don't have schools reporting cases to parents um, and no contact tracing whatsoever. So, so many failures on so many levels. Um, So uh, that's it for the numbers today. Uh, I'll just reiterate that um, the rural areas are the places being hardest hit. Uh, You can see that in the Robson Fletcher cases per 100,000 uh, per region graph that he puts out every day now on his Twitter. So keep an eye out for that. Um, I, I didn't get a chance to listen to the pressure, but one of the things I did hear was that they're uh, proposing a permanent increase to our ICU beds. Um, I think this is craziness that we're not announcing a fire break at this time. It's like having a bathtub and instead of, um, you know, turning off the taps of, of sick patients of COVID positive patients, we're trying to build up the sides of the bathtub to allow more water to go in. Um, the, the, alter, the the other analogy, which is maybe a little darker, is that instead of, um, yeah, you know, uh, in, we're, we're proposing to, to increase the size of our graveyards instead of um, taking the guns away from the people that are shooting others. Um, you know, we really do need to stop the inflow rather than try to accommodate increasing unwell, preventable illnesses in this intentionally cruel wave. Um, so back to you, Michelle. I'm really excited about today's presser, by the way. <laughs> it's um, really important that we we deal with this issue. Thank you very much, Dr. Vipondin. Thank you very much for taking the time out of your exceptionally busy day. I know personally, and I suspect many folks watching at home, hope that you get to have a fairly uneventful shift ahead of you. That being said, please, Alberta, remember if you need emergency care, Dr. Vipond and his colleagues are there for you. So please go visit him. Um, Today, we are going to be unpacking vaccination barriers and myths in Alberta. We know vaccines are critical in preventing severe outcomes when infected with COVID-19. We also know that our province has been suffering from low vaccination. We've heard from many Albertans around the challenges in talking with friends and family about vaccination. I've heard many stories of families being pulled apart at a time when they really need to have complete circles of support to navigate the ongoing crisis. Hopefully today, every one of us will be able to walk away with some additional access points around how we can have productive dialogues with those who we love and those who are important to us about vaccination. 
our first panelists I'm going to bring up quickly, and then they're going to disappear for a few minutes and then come back. Um, I am very excited to introduce for the first time on Protect Our Province, Alberta, Timothy Colfield. Um, he is the Canada Research Chair in Health, Law and Policy, a professor in the Faculty of Law and the School of Public Health and the Research Director of the Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta with his interdisciplinary research topics on stem cells, genetics, research ethics and the public's representations of science and public health policy. He has published over 350 academic articles, has won numerous academic and science communication and writing awards, and has authored two best-selling novels, um, The Cure for Everything, Untangling the Twisted Messages about Health and Fitness and Happiness. Um, I'm so, so thrilled, as well as the co-host or host and co-producer of the documentary TV show, A User's Guide to Cheating Death. Thank you for giving us your time today, Tim. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. And, and it is, you know, such, such an important topic. Um, the misinformation continues, continues to be a huge part uh, of, of this story. Uh, if I could, if I could, can I just give you a couple stats uh, right here to give you a sense? Um, Please. Uh, this is this is a, a some a stat that came out from the United States, but I, I know it's relevant to Canada and gives gives you a sense. Four hundred and thirty seven percent. That is how much misinformation has increased uh, in the month of August as a result of, of of the Delta surge. So not only do we have a surge in infections, we have a surge in the infodemic. Four hundred thirty seven percent, and that was in the context of misinformation about the idea that vaccines don't work. And this narrative continues to be out there. Hard to believe. I know denying that vac these vaccines work right now is like denying the pull of gravity. Um, but still we see it We see it out there. You're, you're still seeing uh, the, the idea that this is an experimental vaccine, you know, not true, uh, that we don't have good safety data, not true. Those narratives still uh, continue to uh, do great harm. Another stat, 85%, 85%. So this was actually research that came out very recently. I'm going to say like two weeks ago uh, from the University of Alberta, a researcher at the University of Alberta uh, looked at misinformation all around the world to get a sense of where it was coming from. You know, what was the origin story for this misinformation? And they found 85% of it, origin story, social media. So yes, yeah, social media continues to be a huge huge part of this and the kind of misinformation we see exploding right now this is my my fancy ivermectin chart <laughs> you know i've been mapping the growth in ivermectin misinformation and and people searching for ivermectin on social media this is a google a rough map of the google trends analysis i did this is all misinformation this is all misinformation it's having a huge impact not only on the use of ivermectin but probably more important for our discussion today on vaccine uptake. The idea is that somehow ivermectin is a replacement for, for vaccines. Of course, not true, not true at all. And of course, my big theme here is always, as always, debunking works. We have to get out there and continue to counter this misinformation, debunking works. There was another great study, again, came out just weeks ago, an international study that found that countering misinformation does work in jurisdictions around the world. Such good news. Such good news. And the big thing I think that we're going to talk to, I might have to come back and talk about this more, is we have to have those conversations. Have those one-on-one -on -one conversations with your neighbors, with your family members. It, it's painful. 
Uh, it, it, it can be really challenging, but it does work. And maybe we can come back to, you know, what a good conversation looks like. But let's start with that first one. Listen, it's so hard not to. It's so hard. It can be very frustrating, but so, so important to listen. Not everyone's a hardcore denier. They may have questions that that we can answer. People like uh, the individuals involved in this panel today that they can, they can answer. So, uh, yeah, looking very, very much looking forward to this conversation. I'm sorry I have to duck out, but I'll come back as, as soon as I can. So no thank you. worries. And thank you, by the way, for all the incredible work that you do. We really need you guys. Go team. Go. Thank you so very much. And thank you for setting us up for the conversation that we are going to continue to work through today. We are going to look at the barriers that have been facing our fellow Albertans. We are going to look at some of the myths around vaccination. And we are going to look at some of the ways that we can talk to those that we love, ongoing conversations and lean into, I think, some really difficult stuff for people because we talk a lot about the anti-vaxxers and that being a concern really it's those that are they're a loud minority oftentimes people who haven't received the vaccination yet face an entirely different set of barriers and so with that in mind I would like to bring on a human that I know to be an supreme source of personal information for me whenever I am looking to talk to anyone in my life about how they could access vaccination, about resources that I could point them into. Um, so I am pleased to reintroduce one of our Protect Our Province Coalition regular members, um, Sarah Mackey, who has been working diligently with two other volunteers running the Alberta Vax Hunters. Their team has helped thousands of Albertans across, across the province get vaccinated. Um, so Sarah, it's been about a week since we've seen you and a couple weeks since we've been able to have a bigger conversation. What's preventing folks from vaccine access at our current time and place? I think a lot of what I seem to sort of be beating the drum about on this subject is the need for more nuance in how we think about what people are dealing with about vaccines and vaccine access, vaccine misinformation. Um, and one of the things I kind of want to talk about today, since we are talking about um, misinformation, is um, getting into some of that nuance that gets sort of erased when we just say, oh, we need to address vaccine misinformation. It's sort of an oversimplification of the process. Uh, this is a complex issue. We need to understand it. Um, we need to understand what that complexity is and then we can better understand how to approach it. Um, one of the things that we're seeing with anti-vaxxers, with vaccine misinformation, with so much of this is that a very small but very vocal contingent gets all the attention when the people that we actually need to worry about are the people who surround that small, loud group. Um, this is a persistent, pervasive cultural crisis of misinformation. Uh, Tim touched on that. And I'm sure he'll speak to it again later. None of us are going to solve this overnight. We're not going to solve it on our own. What I want to talk about today is how we have those one-on-one -on -one conversations with the people who are not the extremists, but that are the ones that are extremist adjacent or just surrounded by this extremism that hasn't allowed them to understand any of the nuance in this conversation. I do wanna say, I don't think anyone should be out there 
trying to persuade the people who are like screaming at healthcare workers or issuing death threats. Like there are people in this conversation who are actively dangerous. Don't try to engage with them. Um, the people we want to identify and try to talk to are those ones that are one step removed. They're surrounded by it, but they, they just don't know who to trust. They aren't impossible to reach, but they're harder to find. So once you've figured out who some of those people are, often your, your trick is to find the family members of the most vocal extreme people and reach out to them. And what you wanna do is identify the source or the type of misinformation that they are falling prey to. Because there's so many different types and categories of misinformation, we can't take the same approach to all of those types to combat it. Um, that, you know, there's not a one size fits all solution for this. Maybe they're a, you can't trust the government, they're withholding the real cures, so big pharma can make the money, whatever, you know, the ivermectin crowd are on about this week. There's the COVID is a big hoax. Um, you can't trust the doctors, the hospitals are empty. I've seen the pictures. Um, there's the, my church says the vaccine is a sin crowd. There's the, um, I don't wanna get vaccinated because I hear it's gonna make me infertile, which one of our other panelists is gonna speak more to later. Um, but the sort of easiest one to tackle is the one where it's just truly misinformation that is a misunderstanding. And some of that is, is often easier to address if you aren't coming at it with people in a more sort of combative approach. It's so hard to do this sometimes when we're all just absolutely out of capacity for like empathy and um, thoughtfulness in our conversations with people who are not uh, contributing to the efforts to end the pandemic. But they, they, there are still people out there who can be reached. One of the big ones is people who think that the vaccines were too rushed, for example. Um, if you tell them, don't worry, they didn't rush anything, they're not gonna believe you because that's just not, they don't wanna have, they don't have the baseline level of trust to believe you. But if you say something along the lines of, government red tape is just slowing everything down all the time, we know what a problem, you know, these this bureaucratic nonsense is. The only reason this could happen so quickly is because this was such an emergency that they could get rid of all those hoops they had to jump through. And so it's it's the same thing you're telling them. They didn't cut any corners. The corners they cut were the bureaucratic corners. But because you're, you're framing it in such a way that is reaching them where they are, you're more likely to get that opening to talk to them further about it. And so you're not, I'm not suggesting that anybody should be validating false information or even encouraging the spread of false information but it's all about how you frame it with them because there is sometimes in some cases, like some understandable fear that's underlying these beliefs. Again, not with the extremists who are beyond reason, but with the people around them who are, they're, they're afraid and they're uncertain and they don't know who to talk to. And another thing I wanna mention about that is that the language that we often hear and just heard just now from the new minister of health is, if you are have been you know, unsure about this vaccine, talk to your healthcare provider or a trusted healthcare provider of some kind. First of all, not everybody has a trusted healthcare provider. Second of all, that's not the right advice when it's someone who doesn't trust the healthcare system and that is their issue with the vaccines. If they're the ones who are like, well, this is all a hoax, they're lying about the hospitals being full, this is all just false information, telling them to talk to a trusted healthcare provider is not actually gonna solve the problem. So what you need to do in those kinds of cases is sort of try to pick away in these conversations, like where are they getting their information and what are the underlying beliefs that they've bought into? And then picking out someone in their lives who is gonna be able to be a trusted ear. Um, you've gotta have the, you know, maybe it's someone, 
we're seeing this in Edson now, um, where there's a sudden significant uptake in um, vaccination rates because they know so many people there who are sick. Often, if they can have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone in their lives who's been in the ICU or has a family member who's been in the ICU or a friend in the ICU and hear about what's actually happening, that's going to be a much more effective person for them to speak to about addressing that misinformation than a healthcare worker if that's someone that they don't trust. Um, if it's just the personal connections are what you need. And so for every scenario that underlies someone's vaccine misinformation, you need to make sure you've got the right person who can address those, those baseline starting assumptions that someone's working with. Um, it's totally understandable to be just out of patience for anyone who's not vaccinated at this point, but it's hard to picture for those of us who are not in this situation, what it must be like to be a person who's unsure about the vaccine in an area where there's like a 35, 40% vaccination rate and you are swimming in this toxic pool of misinformation all the time. And it's, this is not, and I said this last time I was on, this is sort of the, my one trick pony of, um, it's, it's so complicated, is that this is a systemic failure. This is not an individual failure. In some cases, it's an individual failure, but it is an underlying systemic failure that this misinformation is so pervasive that they've never had the opportunity to have those, to hear those different perspectives. Um, we owe it to them to try to reach them, but we also owe it to the rest of us. Like this is a selfish desire on my part. I would like more people to get vaccinated and I am more sick than the average person of talking to people about vaccination, but it's the only way out of this. And so we've just got to keep trying, even though it is endlessly frustrating and exhausting and infuriating. There's just no alternative at this point. Before I bring on our next panelist, um, from your perspective, because I'm an action-oriented human, what is your current or first of mind open-ended question to start a conversation with someone who hasn't been vaccinated? So we, um, my fellow Vax Hunter Jenea found a TikTok, you know, we can discuss later whether TikTok is a valuable source of information, but it is a good way for getting ideas for starting these conversations. And she found and shared um, a TikTok a while ago that talked about the way to open a conversation with someone who isn't vaccinated is ask them on a scale of zero to 10, with zero being, I will never get the vaccine because I believe that it is evil incarnate and poison you know, that will track us through the government, whatever, that's your zero. 10 is like, I was lining up at the door the day that they let me in. On a scale of zero to 10, where do you land on the getting vaccinated front? And if they say anything but zero, then you say, why aren't you a zero? What's the difference between you and a zero? What's the thing that makes you say, well, maybe one day I'll get it. And that gives you, it puts them not on the defensive. You're not accusing them of anything. You're merely trying to understand where they're falling on that spectrum. Part of that is a time-saving method. If they're a zero, like move on with your life and find your next person. But you know, even a two, if you're like, a, if they're like, I don't know, like a two, oh, okay. Like what, what makes you not a zero? What is the thing that makes you think, well, maybe one day I'll get around to it. And Excellent. then that's how you can start digging out the next step. Okay, we are going to revisit this because I'm going to visit this question with all of our panelists. Thank you so very much, Sarah. I am going to bring Rayanne into the conversation. Most of you have seen Rayanne with us before. Um, Rayanne, in addition to her oncology, oncology and palliative care um, nurse practitioner's role, 
is a current COVID-19 immunizer and a regular volunteer with the COVID-19 Resources Canada. Um, they've been providing free Zoom sessions for folks to understand more about their vaccine options. Um, Rand, thank you so very much for coming back. I know that you have some slides. Are you? Can you hear me, okay, Michelle? Yes, I can. And I'm going to disappear so we can bring up your slides. And I'll reintroduce uh, my little co-presenter today, Jasper, who's uh, happy to be here and says, hi, everyone. <laughs> um, and so to start off, I just wanted to say, you know, I we heard in the press conference this afternoon that there's a, a plan to try and uh, the number one um, strategy that Minister Copping uh, announced is that he's going to increase ICU capacity and as someone been who's been helping out in the ICU lately, I, just, I really want to reiterate, we don't want people in ICU. This can't be our, our end goal. Um, once someone's sick enough to require ICU care, their life may never be the same again. They may have chronic health issues thereafter. They may have significantly diminished quality of life. Um, we want to keep people out of ICU. Um, and so I just wanted to start also by saying we receive a lot of questions uh, in this group about treatments for COVID-19. Uh, and I think they're good questions. You know, I, like many others, am always interested in learning about the latest treatments for COVID-19. Um, but the bottom line is that right now we have very limited proven effective treatments for COVID-19. Uh, there are thousands of, thousands of clinical trials ongoing that are assessing various treatments for COVID-19. But as of right now, there's only a small handful of uh, treatments that work. And typically, these treatments uh, are referred are reserved for uh, people who are very sick already and already in hospital or ICU. Um, and so, yeah, of course, in addition to the severe outcomes that are always mentioned in the news, hospitalizations and death, uh, we also really want to prevent people from getting COVID-19 so that they don't end up with later long-term consequences of COVID infection like long uh, COVID. Um, and so I, I had said this analogy on Twitter uh, yesterday that, you know, it, this strategy that we've got right now is akin to saying we don't need firefighters or fire prevention strategies. We'll just build more burn units. That can't be the way we, we get out of this. So um, these on the slide are the, the strategies that we have right now for preventing COVID-19. And I have in italics pharmacotherapeutics. Uh, so that would be the question. Are there medications that can be uh, used to prevent uh, COVID-19 infection? Um, next slide, please. So I think the big elephant or horse in the room um, is ivermectin. Uh, and, you know, there's been a lot of data and there are clinical trials that are ongoing right now um, looking at ivermectin for the prevention and treatment of COVID-19. Uh, this was a Cochrane review that was done um, earlier this year and published in July. Uh, bottom line is, is right now the, the data from these clinical trials um, is of poor quality uh, and the evidence is equivocal, meaning that we don't have quality evidence so far to say that ivermectin should be used either for the prevention or treatment of COVID-19. This particular uh, review looked at 14 randomized clinical trials uh, at, that were assessing ivermectin for the prevention or treatment of um, covid and bottom line, um, even though they include a, included a large number of participants, uh, there are 1,678 participants included, um, the recommendation was that we can't proceed with um, recommending ivermectin either for the prevention or treatment of COVID-19 at the time. But there are many, many trials that are ongoing still. Uh, clinicaltrials.gov um, shows as of today, there are 79 clinical trials uh, on ivermectin and COVID-19. So we should have more data forthcoming. 
Next slide, please. I'll just skip over this, I guess, quickly because uh, this is just the the one lone RCT that they found uh, that was uh, assessing COVID nineteen for the prevention of uh, sorry uh, ivermectin for the prevention of SARS CoV two infection, uh, and ultimately um, no recommendation could be made uh, because the the trial was not of sufficient evidence uh, to be able to make the patient to use COVID or uh, ivermectin for prevention of COVID. Uh, next slide, please. AHS has uh, released a report, and this is available for everyone to read. It's in the public domain. Uh, so earlier this year, and then it was revised again, I believe back in July when the Cochrane Review came out, um, that at this time, ivermectin should not be prescribed or taken to prevent COVID-19 outside of a clinical trial. Although uh, scientists and physicians are encouraged to um, uh, recommend patients if there's a relevant clinical trial they're eligible for, that they should be considered for that. Next slide, please. And so this slide is just showing how very complicated uh, the pathophysiology of uh, COVID infection is. And so when you have the, and, and thus the, the treatment strategies are very um, complicated as well. So early in the course of disease, you've got the viral response phase, and that's where we're looking at uh, antiviral medications and things to reduce um, viral load and, and that kind of thing. And then as the disease progresses, there's this really aberrant or out of control host inflammatory response. And that's really often responsible for some of the very severe outcomes that we see in patients who are very, um, very unwell with COVID. Um, and so the treatment strategies for these different phases of infection or phases of disease uh, differ. Um, you can see early on, there's antivirals, antimalarials, gyvermectin being studied. Uh, and then later on in the course of disease, we're looking at things to kind of mitigate or abrogate that um, out of control host inflammatory bonds. So things like um, tocilizumab, uh, that's an anti-interleukin-6 um, inhibitor and things like some of the other monoclonal antibodies. But again, you can see those treatments are reserved then when somebody is very, very sick, and we don't want someone to get that to that phase for sure. Uh, and some of those treatments, I should also say, are very much in short supply, and they're also um, uh, incredibly expensive, and they can come with their own uh, array of side effects as well. Uh, next slide, please. So ideally, really, really, really want to prevent people from getting badly sick. Uh, this is just showing you that as of today, there's 6,000 and some uh, clinical trials looking at treatment options and strategies for COVID-19 uh, that are occurring worldwide. So, um, you know, we're not all putting ourselves into this. Uh, vaccine is the only um, uh, strategy uh, box. Uh, definitely there's lots of, of work being done worldwide, but as of today, right now, I would say, and it should be uh, forevermore, that prevention of disease is, is uh, definitely something that we would uh, rather see uh, than people getting sick, especially sick enough to require uh, care in hospital. Next slide, please. So how do the vaccines work? Um, so in Canada, we've got uh, approval of uh, two different types of vaccines. So we've got the mRNA vaccines, and that's Pfizer and Moderna. And we've got the viral vector vaccines. Um, so the ones that are improved, approved in Canada are AstraZeneca and um, uh, the, the Janssen vaccine, but we have not been using the Janssen vaccine in Alberta yet. Um, the, vac the mRNA vaccines uh, contain material from the virus that causes COVID-19. So essentially that gives our cells instructions for how to make a harmless protein that is very similar to the virus. After our cells make copies of that protein, they destroy that genetic material from the vaccine. And then our bodies will recognize that protein should not be there 
and build special types of white blood cells, T lymphocytes and B lymphocytes, that will remember how to fight the virus that causes COVID if we're infected in the future. Um, and then the viral vector vaccines contain a modified version of, different, of a different virus. Uh, and so adenovirus is the one uh, that we're using so far. Um, so that's a different virus than the one that causes COVID-19. And the reason we use that is it, it helps to get the, uh, the messages into our cells. And inside the shell of the modified virus, there's material from the virus that causes COVID-19. That's the viral vector piece. And once the viral vector is inside our cells, the genetic material gives cells instructions to make a protein that's unique to the virus that causes COVID-19. And using the instructions, um, our cells make copies of the protein. And then this, again, prompts our bodies to build T lymphocytes and B lymphocytes that will remember how to fight the virus if we're infected. Um, it's important to note that there are no fetal cells in these vaccines and there's no metal in these vaccines. You will not become magnetized. Um, that's just not possible. Uh, next slide, please. Oh, this is just a cartoon showing uh, that both the mRNA vaccine and the adenoviral vector vaccine. Uh, so um, AstraZeneca or Janssen uh, produce um, will eventually cause your T cells and B cells to produce, um, your body to produce T cells and B cells so that you will remember uh, the infection and the virus if you uh, become infected at some point in the future. So your body is prepped and prepared should you uh, encounter the virus in the future. Next slide, please. So there are lots of awesome sites and just in the interest of time, I'm not going to get into all of the uh, myths about the vaccines or frequently asked questions, um, but I'll highlight a few um, today for you. Next slide, please. Um, so this is probably one of the most common ones, and I was asking my uh, family today, what questions would you have if you could ask uh, about the vaccines? And this is one that I hear so often is these vaccines were developed too fast, uh, the process was rushed. And in fact, that isn't the case. Um, you know, scientists were not starting from scratch. They had the benefit of having worked on uh, SARS and MERS uh, in the past. Um, this article that I've uh, pasted in here too. Uh, is is an article about mRNA vaccines that was published in 2018. So even pre-COVID, uh, there were a number of um, studies that were ongoing and were um, looking at uh, mRNA vaccine technology. Um, there was also worldwide collaboration, uh, lots of funding uh, that was easily available, readily available, which is sometimes a barrier for clinical trials. And then they also had the benefit of easily recruiting participants, um, which is something that is also quite unusual for clinical trials. Um, next, please. I'm going to zip through these real fast so we can get um, So uh, yeah, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, in the discussion. Yes, there can be some serious side effects. They're exceedingly rare and they are treatable. So when I vaccinate people, I always tell them what to watch for, for the side effects. Uh, next slide. And the vaccine safety. So we've got data from Canada um, and in worldwide. We know now uh, more than 6 billion doses have been administered worldwide, uh, 55 million doses in Canada. Um, and, you know, we hear a lot about adverse events being reported, um, but 11,000 of these were considered non-serious. So that would be like the sore arm, uh, tingling, prickling, the vaccination site headache. Some of these were serious. 201 out of, you know, 55 million doses were uh, resulted in anaphylaxis. And there have been six deaths uh, reported. And that's that vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia, that rare clotting um, uh, disorder that we saw with the viral vector vaccines. Uh, next slide. And I'll just say that you can get these bad things uh, with COVID infection too. And this one study shows that in fact, all these bad things that can happen with the vaccines happen way more frequently um, with COVID infection. This was a huge study done in Israel. And I think 
that is all I have to say. I think I'm done. And pregnancy, I know Dr. Cooper will talk about pregnancy. So I will uh, oh. sign off for now. Thanks. That is exactly where we are going to go is to a conversation around pregnancy. Thank you so very much, um, Rianne. We will bring you back up for part of our conversation towards the end. Um, I am very happy um, to have Dr. Stephanie Cooper here with us today, a high-risk obstetrician um, and maternal fetal medicine specialist um, who has been working at the Foothills Hospital in Calgary. Um, she's been involved in the development and implementation of policies around COVID and pregnancy and has directly cared for many pregnant women with this disease. Stephanie, thank you so very much for joining us. Um, I've heard a lot of concerns around folks who are pregnant or contemplating becoming pregnant around whether or not they should be vaccinated. Um, I am not a vaccine hesitant person when it comes to COVID-19 vaccinations, but I know that I could very easily have thought harder about that decision had it been when I was pregnant with either of my two children. I was super cognizant about what I was putting into my body. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about your advice for folks who are currently pregnant or contemplating becoming pregnant and how we can have those conversations um, with other women in our lives that are of childbearing age? Yeah, great. Well, thanks for having me. And I, I really um, don't want to take too much of anybody's time. Um, I think it's it's a scary time out there for everybody and even more so for women who are pregnant. Um, and absolutely, as you said, it's, you know, pregnancy is a time where everybody is so cautious about, you know, what they eat. You know, they're told not to uh, lie on one side. They're told that you shouldn't eat sushi and um, soft cheese. So automatically to protect the baby, a pregnant person is automatically going to think, well, I shouldn't have a vaccine. Um, and I think, you know, certainly in the early stages of the pandemic and, um, and last year when we did get the vaccine available for pregnant women, it was still at a point where, you know, we were thinking that, well, pregnant women are not more likely to have complications than non-pregnant people. And so, um, you know, we're discussing them very, you know, the risks and benefits very much weighed on is a woman going to be exposed to people who have COVID? Does she have underlying comorbidities? But that's all changed with Delta. It is very concerning that this particular variant does not, or maybe it likes pregnant women too much, um, because we are seeing very sick women uh, in our ICUs, in our hospitals, and it's very different um, from what we experienced in the earlier waves. And I can say that the majority or all the um, uh, very ill and uh, critically ill women uh, who have ended up in our hospitals in the Delta wave have been unvaccinated. So certainly our messaging has changed as well because we've got increasing data that supports the safety of vaccinations in pregnancy. So um, although the uh, initial clinical trials of the you know, saltwater injection versus the vaccine we're not on pregnant patients. We've had lots of follow-up data since vaccines became available um, last December, and we have shown no increased risk of complications, um, whereas we are seeing increased risk of complications with 
people who do get COVID. So we're not seeing increased risk of preterm birth or, you know, small babies or babies going to NICU or birth defects or miscarriages or infertility. Um, none of those even make biological sense because the vaccine does not cross the placenta. It does not get into your blood. It doesn't go to the baby and doesn't harm the baby. It doesn't go into the baby's DNA. But what does go to the baby are antibodies. And so when uh, a person receives the COVID vaccine, they um, develop antibodies, which are good antibodies. They cross the placenta and uh, these antibodies are protective. And we have, you know, studies have demonstrated that if you test the baby's blood after birth, you can uh, detect good levels of these antibodies. And, you know, this uh, leads us to believe that little babies who are vulnerable, who have not yet developed, you know, immune systems the way that, you know, uh, older children have, that this is one way that we can protect vulnerable newborns um, for the complications of COVID. So really, as we see risk versus benefit, um, without question, um, the benefit of the vaccine is there, not just for the pregnant individual, but also for their baby. And, you know, how do, how do we get that information out? Um, you know, if you're talking to a pregnant person or a newborn, uh, a mom of a, a newborn or parents of a newborn, um, you know, avoid Google, Facebook, don't go to baby center for advice. Look at, you know, the Center for Disease Control or um, SOGC. So big pregnancy organizations, because all the big pregnancy organizations are supporting vaccine, vaccination and pregnancy. And if you are somebody who has had a vaccine in pregnancy, share your experience with people who may be hesitant, because I think there's so much about women who are scared um, and they're uncertain and they have questions. And, you know, coming together as a community of uh, new parents and, you know, pregnant people to support other people through this difficult uh, time and give, you know, reassurance and support for these people. So I will end off there. That's my soapbox. But um, yeah, thanks for giving me the opportunity to share my ongoing message of, you know, pro-vaccination for pregnancy. No, thank you very much for coming in and having this conversation with us. I think one of the even better yet going forward for all of Alberta is beginning to look at what populations are most likely to experience some of that hesitancy. And as you mentioned, with so many messages around what is safe to put into our bodies during a time of pregnancy, it is exceptionally important that we look at ways that we can access folks currently pregnant who may be experiencing some resistance. I'm going to bring us all together now that way, and we also have Dr. Bakshi with us as well, which thrills me, um, to talk for 15 minutes or so about how we can lean into those sometimes awkward, sometimes terrifying, sometimes very nervousing conversations with the people in our lives. Um, Sarah had offered via one of her colleagues in TikTok um, a unique icebreaker that I had never heard before on that scale from one to 10 or zero to 10 of not letting a COVID-19 vaccine anywhere near me to being the first person to sign up when they became available. What thoughts do the rest of you have around good ways to lean into those conversations and some of those first questions that we can ask people in our circles? 
I always try to have um, a quote from Ted Lasso here, be curious, not judgmental. So try, try to not be judgmental about their reasons and, and very open and just understand why they're hesitant. And sometimes people have excellent questions and very legitimate concerns. And so just trying to address those and, um, and just really keeping an open mind. I've got some friends that were hesitant and they had good reasons to be hesitant, I think. And and when I was able to um, non-judgmentally have really kind of non-threatening, non-pressurizing kind of conversations with them, I think that they were very open to it. And a number of them have gone on to get vaccinated. I think that's a huge part of it that like the truly terrible reasons for not getting vaccinated get a lot of bandwidth when there's actually people with like genuine questions that get buried by the volume of the, the people with the bad reasons um, and that there are people out there that can be reasoned with and that it is I love using Ted Lasso as your baseline for that. I think like have your separate like side conversation going or whatever if it's a text message chat have a separate window in which you're like screaming into the void it's so hard to maintain that level of like, let's talk about this rather than just wanting to like knock their head against a wall. But that's, that never convinced anybody, you know? Uh, I was going to say, one of the things that I've been doing in my um, outpatient practice is um, I, I started to ask really in the last couple of months, you know, and now I'm asking patients, you know, may I ask if you've gotten your vaccine? Some of them don't want to tell me. Most of the time, if they if they haven't gotten it, though, they will tell me and they'll say, well, this is the reason why, or we'll talk about it, just as Rianne said, be non-judgmental. But one of the things that I've also done is that I have a few patients who I've known for, you know, I have the luxury of knowing them for about eight or 10 years now who have autoimmune conditions or who have conditions that um, you know, they were in, themselves were concerned about uh, flaring up if they got the vaccine or, or they were hesitant themselves and then they went on to get it. Uh, they've had to become my vaccine ambassador. So if somebody else has a similar condition to what they have, they've given me permission to say, I'm happy to talk to that patient. I also have POTS. I also have MS. I also have, you know, whatever the condition may be. Um, and I'm happy to talk to them. So it takes a little bit more work. Um, it takes a little bit more, uh, and you need to have the right person and advocate to help you with that. Um, but I think it's really powerful when you have somebody else who has the same condition as that person. They could, there's a different relatability than I have as a clinician that's kind of towering over and saying, no, you should still get it. Yeah, I, I think these are all you know really excellent points. And, and, and we have good evidence to back up what everyone has just said. There's there's solid evidence that that telling a story can make a difference. For example, here here's my list. I'll go back to that list I, I was I had earlier. As it was already said, you know, listen, listen, listen. It's so important to do that. Empathy. Try to be empathetic. Uh, and and there's actual evidence to back back this up that that's an important approach. And I know it can be it can be challenging because there's so much anger right now. In fact, there was a study that came out I think just yesterday that said that. I think it was two thirds of Canadians now are angry with the unvaccinated. And I get it. You've got to put that anger aside. It's not going to get us anywhere. It's not going to be constructive. Uh, we really try, have to try to be empathetic and common ground, as, as was just said. You know, try to find some common ground with the individual that is, is hesitant. Maybe it's frustration with the uncertainty of the science. Maybe it's uh, common ground because you want to, you're concerned about your family members and you're concerned about your community. Everyone has common ground. Tell your story. Why? Why did you get the vaccine, and how did you feel about it? Almost everyone, you know, feels awesome after they got the vaccine. Um, and always remember to rely on on the big picture science. You know, we it's so easy to get pulled into the details. You know, Rhea was talking about this a little bit, right? 
the details of the science. There's all this conflicting data around boosters and, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Focus on the, the big picture. And there's, again, evidence to back that up. Um, you talk about, about the scientific consensus, point out the rhetorical tricks that are used to push misinformation, give people a path to credible information. And I'm going to give you a path right now. <laughs> this is our initiative, hashtag science up first. It's a, uh, it's a social media platform that's on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. So be prepared to dance. Uh, and it's got, it's got good, credible information as a whole, whole, uh, a whole area where we we give links to places that are independent uh, and respond to a lot of the questions that we've been talking about. And the other really important thing here is we have produced shareable content. We try to make it positive. We try to use diverse voices. Uh, we try to speak to different communities. So please come be part of the Science Up First team. We try to make all of our strategies evidence-based. So not only is the not only is the science that we're talking about you know credible, but the strategies that we are are using to talk to people and to have these conversations also science-based. So yeah, come join the team. And I agree with everything that has been said already. One thing too, that I think gets is underrated as a factor in social media, especially where these conversations are happening out in the open is that you don't necessarily know who's reading. And like when you have some person on your Facebook or whatever that, you know, uncle Bill is posting his 500th meme about whatever nonsense he's on this week. You don't know who's necessarily reading. And while I don't necessarily think you need to comment on all 500 of Uncle Bill's posts, if you then have, you know, let's say Uncle Bill's grandkids are on his Facebook page reading this. If you're the person on his, their social media feeds who is making yourself available in a non-judgmental way for like, you can talk to me, I can, I'm happy to answer questions. I know there's a ton of information flying around. It's hard to know what to trust or what to believe. I've done a ton of research. I'm happy to talk to you. If you're making yourself available for that, because there's so much shame around this right now for people who aren't unvaccinated, establishing yourself as a safe person to talk to can go a really long way for them being like, okay, I'm ready to ask questions and I know who I can ask. I get a ton of these. Like I talk to people over the last six months that I haven't talked to in 20 years because they're like, okay, I know Sarah knows about vaccines. I can talk to her. And the bystander effect is like really significant. So even when you're having these conversations where people who haven't said a word about vaccines one way or another are reading, they get that information, even if they're not the one that you're actually having the conversation with. Um, I just wanna follow up with all these amazing points. And um, I think we need to talk about it. Um, there is a bit of a stigma about discussing vaccination with people um, because there's this, um, I guess, umbrella of freedom, et cetera, that goes along with vaccination that we're all struggling with um, in terms of how to navigate. Um, but I think we just have to have the conversations. And, you know, some of my um, uh, nurse colleagues have said, you know, I, I'm afraid to ask people, am I allowed to ask them about vaccination? And I think we should. I think it should be an open conversation in a non-judgmental way. And if, you know, if uh, everybody who uh, has had a positive experience is to share that so that, you know, that's what how we overcome some of the fear is um, to, yeah, to, to be open and honest and, and, you know, discuss this together. But, you know, great ideas from everybody. I, I'll write them down too. Wonderful. Yeah, Stephanie, if I, if I could comment on that, that last point, I, I think you were so right. Um, you know, people often ask me what's changed in the, in the rhetoric around misinformation. And I think you nailed it. A lot of it's become more ideological. And unfortunately, the anti-vax community has been very, very effective at, at injecting this idea 
of rights and freedom and choice. And it's all, it's private and you shouldn't be asking. My wife's a family physician and she often encounters this, the idea that, you know, you do not have a right to ask me about my, it's sort of inappropriate to ask you about your vaccination status. That's the wrong attitude, right? And I don't think, first of all, as a law professor, I can tell you there's no legal foundation for that at all, despite what's circulating in pop culture. No legal foundation for that at all. But more importantly, I think these conversations so so important. Got to pick your battles. You got to know when it's right. You might not be the right voice. You might not be the right person. But when you are the right person, I think Sarah, as Sarah pointed this out, you can have such a huge impact. There's a really interesting study that just came out. And this is another good news. I love good news stories. And it said that, you know, it's all about the message. It doesn't matter if you are, you know, um, Nicki Minaj and have 20 million followers or whether you have three followers, the message matters, right? Right, Sarah? And and if you can be that voice, uh, you can really make a difference. And so uh, that is, that's really good news. And it's if, if each one of us can influence just two people, that expands. Before I move on to our last um, sort of wrap-up question, we do have a media question. I am inviting Brittany Gervais from the Calgary Herald and Calgary Sun into our conversation, who had a question for our panel today. You are live. Brittany, go ahead. Hello. Thank you so much for taking my question and for hosting this panel today. Um, So I just wanted to get kind of an opinion from the panel just to see if this is something that you're hearing or if this is something um, that the province needs to be preparing for, might be concerned about what we did see um, kind of an open letter circulating supposedly from healthcare workers who were opposed to vaccination mandates coming up. We haven't been able to verify this, but just brought up the question about vaccine hesitancy uh, with Alberta's healthcare workers. So, um, you know, they're having conversations in Ontario and New York about possible worker shortages that could come up if some people refuse to, to get vaccinated. So just wanted to hear if vaccine hesitancy among healthcare workers is something that you've heard or if it's prevalent, prevalent enough to be something that concerns this panel. And if so, how can or should the province kind of prepare to deal with more potential worker shortages? I can start. Yeah, I'm aware of the letter uh, and uh, it is extremely frustrating. Um, And I do think this matters. It matters for a number of reasons. Number one, um, we know and research tells us this, that that people trust and listen to healthcare providers, Um, whether you're talking about nurses or uh, physicians, you name it, a healthcare provider, they're trusted voices in this space. So even if it's a small percentage of people um, from that community, they can have uh, an outsized impact on the public discourse. Uh, we know from a, a survey that the, co- the College of Physicians and Surgeons did very recently, I think it was 97% of, of Alberta physicians support uh, the mandates and passports and the public health measures and vaccines. Uh, but this very small percentage, 3%, can have a ad- really adverse impact. So it matters from that perspective. Um, I think it also matters from the workforce perspective. I don't think it's as acute as in, say, New York, but you've heard ICUs are full uh, and any kind of work disruption can be problematic. But the other thing is that letter is full of misinformation. And just having that circulating in, in popular culture can do real damage. I can guarantee that tomorrow morning, I can guarantee we can come back and ask this, there's going to be anti-vaxxers who have sent it to me. Um, or it'll be on anti-vaxxer blogs, you know, quoting that letter. Um, and once it's out there, you, you can't pull it back and it just does the damage. So that's why I think it's so important, like people involved in this call, 
that we get out there and we counter the the bunk that is in in that letter uh, and we make sure that we highlight that this is a fringe group of of healthcare providers most healthcare providers need our support and they're 100 on side with the public health measures that are required dr bakshi would you like to add anything uh, no, I, I think I would agree, echo everything that was just said. I think um, it's important to know that the college and various organizations around the province are looking at how do we work um, with the physicians that uh, are spreading this misinformation? What does it look like to kind of talk to them, understand where they're coming from, but also to protect Albertans, right? So the, one of the important things that comes out of the college and the Alberta Medical Association is that our goal is to protect Albertans. And that means the health of Albertans. That means um, talking about misinformation and debunking all that misinformation, because as was just mentioned, it can do great harm. And so I think it's important to let Albertans know that this is being looked at from a provincial level, from a college level, and, and how we can uh, make sure that uh, the misinformation doesn't harm more people. Yeah, and I think that overall for those healthcare workers who are actually in the ICU or in the hospital, on the wards, taking care of these critically ill patients, those are not the people who wrote the letter. Um, those are not the people who are taking care of patients. So I would just say from my perspective, seeing that letter is just so profoundly disappointing that that's what they felt and the impact that a letter like that would have on their peers. And it just is so very disappointing. Yeah, I'd have to echo that, that I would invite any of those people to join me next week when I'm on the COVID ward um, for five minutes. And I guarantee you that many, most of those pe people will not. I'll say the same, that uh, my colleagues and the people I've worked with in ICU and then my colleagues in my regular day job, uh, everybody was super excited to get vaccinated. I've not heard of one single colleague of mine that has um, refused or declined the vaccine. Um, and as president of the Canadian Association of Nurses and Oncology, we issued a statement uh, requiring or calling for and supporting mandatory vaccination for oncology nurses and healthcare professionals that work with people who have cancer because they're at significantly increased risk of adverse outcomes with COVID infection. Uh, and so, and from a legal standpoint, I've spoken with the Canadian Nurses Protective Society about uh, the legal aspects of mandatory vaccination for healthcare workers, and legally, there really is no uh, no legal argument uh, against um, mandatory vaccination imposed by employers. So, uh, it's disappointing. And I, in preparation for today's talk, I uh, spent some time debunking some of the misinformation in those in that letter. And also, there were two uh, pediatricians who had written letters recently as well, um, with a lot of uh misinformed claims about vaccines um and i did a lot of reading over the past few days to to prepare myself to address those questions should they arise during our talk today perfect so your question okay. Brittany. that's fantastic thank you all so much for for providing input on that i really appreciate that no thank you very much for joining us we are at the 529 time, which means it is almost time for us to say goodbye. Um, I get a feeling like with this conversation that can't be unpacked in an hour. A lot of these conversations that we might be having with folks in our circle also can't be unpacked in an hour. Um, I know for myself as a human, I'm very much a getter done. I wanna do it, especially if I dive into something. Um, I feel like coming from that place of empathy and openness and understanding, it might be advantageous 
to also be able to step back partway through a conversation with somebody and ask if you can revisit the conversation with them again in the near future. I know for me, whenever somebody talks to me about something that I am on one side of a non-existent fence on, it's really easy to get defensive. Um, so I was wondering if that was something that like, if you all were talking to, uh, you know, non-medicine like me at home, um, who wants to help their family? I don't need to succeed in one conversation, right? Definitely not. It's if you rarely will. And that's part of what's frustrating is that I think it's easy to give up when you think you haven't made any progress, but you don't know what seeds are being planted and what foundation is being laid. You don't know who's listening. You don't know what's going to change their mind. You don't know what conversation they're going to have next. And it's so much more infuriating because that's the case that you may never know if they get vaccinated, but that those conversations still matter and they still make a difference. Even when the person doesn't go like throwing a parade on their way to the vaccination clinic, you know, they can still, you're still making a difference even when it feels like you are talking to a particularly infuriating ball. I, I agree with Sarah so much, you know, it's a journey, right, Sarah? It's a journey. And, um, I, I, I always say you can't rely on anecdotes and testimonials and stories as evidence, but I'm going to, I get them all the time. People email me and they say, I'm sure everyone here has a similar story, right? And they say, you know what? Um, I looked at the material you sent, you know, my grandmother got vaccinated. I got vaccinated. My, my child got vaccinated. Those stories are out there and I find them incredibly encouraging. And you know what? Those stories matter. Those conversations matter. Thank you all so very much. Um, it has been great to have such a diverse panel of experts with us today from folks that we have never had the opportunity to interact with before and to some of our regular Pop AB Coalition members. So from our panelists, media, folks watching at home, thank you all so very much. Today's panel, again, contained a lot of critical information um, for talking to folks in your circle of influence to overcome barriers on vaccination, feel free to revisit. Um, share sections of the panel. We'll often cut it up afterwards. All of these humans have wonderful Twitter feeds with a whole lot of fantastic information on them. So I always encourage you to find them. We have a new hashtag today that I think Timothy Colfield's going to hold up again right now. Where did it go? Where did it go? Where did it go? Excellent, excellent. And all of you watching at home know that you can find us. Um, we like our hashtag pop AB as well as our at protect or at wow, I can't even do it. Um, we've got at ABVax underscore Vax there for Sarah. You all know where to find us now. I'm just babbling. I'm excited. What can I say? Um, it's a process. It requires patience. But with so many Albertans looking to help, I actually really believe that we can take action to increase vaccination in positive ways and to build more closer open relationships with those we love if we make it a priority. I encourage every single one of you watching to not put that pressure yourself make a conversation like this come out perfectly in an hour um, to allow breathing space to ask consent of those you're talking to to send them more information to revisit the conversation again to start with an open-ended question and for those of you not on the twitterverse um, i wanted to offer an update on eric um, he is back at home post his procedure um, he's publicly stated that he has a long road ahead and is currently unable to experience some of the aspects of himself that make him him. 
Um, but I will say that the human that we spoke with just prior to his procedure was a dedicated and determined human. And I really feel that he will continue traversing his path and the challenges that come along with that same dedication and determination. From all of us at POP AB, um, Eric, we are hoping that that path is as smooth as it can be. We will be back on Thursday to explore rapid tests and underutilized tool and how they can make a difference in our battle to protect our province. Until next time, remember, COVID-19 is airborne. Wear the best, avail best available mask you have access to and vaccinations and conversations about them really do save lives. Thank you, everyone, and stay safe. Thank you.